Hello and welcome back to the Faultline podcast, the audio companion to the famous weekly B2B trade publication covering the media and entertainment technology marketplace. My name's Tommy Flanagan and in this week's episode we welcome an executive who has built a significant platform in the media landscape, someone whose career has taken a few wickets and for whom future coves look extremely bright. I've been looking forward to this one for a while. It's Marty Roberts, SVP Product Strategy and Marketing at Bright Cove. How are you today, Marty? Good, good. Thanks for having me, Tommy. Thank you. And as you may or may not have noticed, I managed to slide in three crude references there from your employment yeah. history into the introduction. But um, four might have been difficult. I'm not sure I could work with gift certificates dot com but um, <laughs> we, we we could go even further back to you know touch on the start of your your career at real networks but for our argument's sake we'll bring our starting point forward uh, a few years and you're still relatively new to to bright cove you joined in february 2022 via acquisition which we'll come on to a bit later and i promise that we'll we'll get into the main course soon to talk about what Bright Cove has planned for IBC 2023 in a couple of weeks. But here at the Faultline podcast, we like to peer a little bit at the people behind the technology, you know, that we cover on a day-to-day basis. So we're going to start by taking a, a trip down memory lane to pinpoint when, or if on some occasions, you as a person, not the company, first appeared on the pages of Faultline. So Marty... Yeah, I'm interested to, to know if you re- remember this or not. Your Faultline debut came almost exactly a decade ago in October 2013 when you were at the platform, uh, which was uh, the, the video management technology provider. And uh, at the time, the platform had just released uh, an end-to-end open framework in collaboration with a, a sort of medley of specialist vendors to allow pay TV operators to deliver a full cloud-based linear pay TV service. And now I, I read this interview in Faultline earlier today and my initial thought was, oh, wow, this could have been written yesterday. You know, the themes of your interview in Faultline, like, still felt very current. You were touching on topics like CDN commoditization, you know, dynamic advertising, personalization, metadata, e-commerce, cloud-based UIs. I think that was 2013. That was a few years before I joined the industry. Um, and there's one apt quote that uh, that I've pulled here where you say, over time, we anticipate that cloud delivery is the direction that everyone will go. Not next year, five years, maybe, but 10 years from now, for sure. Well, here we are, we're here 10 years later. So that brings us to my first question for you, Marty, which is, I mean, have you have you always had a knack for uh, you know reading tea leaves and predicting the future? Because I'd say that cloud-based uh, IP video delivery is it's kind of pretty widely embraced today, even by so-called legacy operators. And I mean, you could argue that the the pandemic maybe favoured your uh, forecast to some extent here. (laughs) But yeah, are you happy with that? Yeah, no, I think, um, you know, what I think we benefited from back 10 years ago, um, we were an independent subsidiary of Comcast. Um, So both Comcast was pushing forward with a lot of innovation relative to migrating from their traditional kind of cable stack into IP. They had recognized that the economics were not as good at that time for IP delivery, but over the next five to 10 years, they would get as competitive, if not more competitive, and they would unlock new revenue opportunities. 
um, uh, things today like the app stores that we kind of see that are kind of ubiquitous on every uh, big uh, pay TV platform uh, akin to an Amazon channels or an Apple TV plus things like that. Um, so we were kind of, we had a vision into what was happening there. Uh, we were also working with pay TV operators around the world at that time. And so it was really kind of, you know, at the time, we were also migrating British Telecom off of their old uh, media rooms uh, technology stack into an IP first um, uh, VOD technology. We were working with Liberty Global. So we had a really interesting view into where the industry was going. And uh, it felt inevitable at that point. It was just a question of, of um, you know, what we were looking at was and what was interesting was you had a bunch of legacy infrastructure that was all capitalized. So it was effectively free to keep doing TV the old way. And you had a bunch of dynamic new business models that were coming in, like uh, more addressable and dynamic advertising that could juice the revenues of these organizations. And yet that technology was still pretty nascent. And so you saw the opportunity, you saw the cost, and at some point those lines were gonna flip. It was gonna make absolute economic sense for people to push into this space. So uh, yeah, um, so you know, it's good to get one right, I guess, as, uh, as we look back, so. And it would be remiss of us not to extend or allow you to, the opportunity to extend this projection out further. So what does your timeline look like in terms of you know, cloud-based TV over the next decade? Yeah, I mean, you know, that's a that's a more difficult call. It, it is. Um, so let's break it down into a couple of buckets. You know, from a technology standpoint, it's just going to continue to get better at uh, bigger scale. Right. So um, doing broadcast to millions of concurrent viewers today is a regular occurrence. Um, uh, TV, the old TV stuff still wins on the Super Bowl or a big event, you know, on 40 million concurrence and that kind of stuff. And so IP will actually scale into those kind of um, realms. Additionally, um, and so, you know, we're going to see the, the evolution of our IP infrastructure continue to do more scale, do more secure uh, broadcasting. All of that will continue to evolve. And, and that's just on a good kind of like making good leaps and bounds as we go up. I think the more interesting thing to look at over the next 10 years and the, uh, is um, both new business models that are going to come into the kind of overall, um, uh, you know, premier or uh, premium video space, um, things like sports betting, things like, um, uh, you know, funny thing is you'd say what was old is new again. Now the easy projection is we're going to go back to more bundles. People are going to start bundling all of these subscription packages together on a, on a fixed rate. Um, everybody hated the cable bundle. Uh, I don't think it's going to come back where you get 400 channels and people only watch 11 to 17 of those channels, but definitely we're going to start to see more bundles come back into play just because the economics are better and that uh, retained customers are better. So I, I think we're going to see over the next 10 years, much more innovative business models come into the um, into the business itself. Um, maybe a return to more bundling like the old paid TV operators uh, and then just a continued progression of technology. I, I don't think there's, uh, there'll, there'll be a few leaps, but nothing on the horizon. People are talking about generating AI as like a game changer. It feels more like a sustaining innovation than a disrupting innovation to me. So, mm -hmm. Cable 2.0, perhaps, as some people have coined it, powered yeah. by the, the cloud, maybe. Yeah. But yeah. Right. Heading uh, back into our archives now. So after that mention, you popped up again with another mention in 2014. You were still at the platform at that time. Mm -hmm. But it was then an agonizing six-year wait 
until our paths crossed again, Marty. <laughs> that was in July 2020, by which time, obviously, you'd long co-founded um, an audience insights platform provider called Wicket Labs in uh, early 2016, that was. And having read back through these articles now, you know, in, kind of in Wicket Labs, I can kind of see elements of what the platform was maybe missing in some ways but you know like many the platform had kind of preferred to partner with pure play you know analytics providers so maybe just this opportunity to kind of take us back in time and tell us about how wicket labs came about following your um your experience at, at the platform yeah you know it was it was interesting so uh, I left Comcast in 2015, um, uh, spent a little time kind of soul searching uh, about what would be next, um, ended up reconnecting with one of the co-founders of the platform, who actually had really sold it, um, Ian Blaine. He actually was a co-founder of the platform and, and was CEO and sold it to Comcast. So I worked for Ian for eight years and then took over for him as the co-CEO when he stepped out. Um, the two of us started talking about ideas and really got back to this really hard problem our customers kept uh, asking us. So we were aggregating a lot of metadata for content discovery, a lot of entitlement data from all kinds of different sources based on different rights and roles based on each uh, piece of content that we were managing. And our customers would come to us and say, could you also aggregate all of our analytics data? Um, we never really had that capability or that core competency. So we always kind of passed on that opportunity but um, we came back to it and thought, wow, that's a really interesting problem to solve, especially when it comes to subscription video. Uh, you have app stores that are giving you some data. Your subscriber management giving, is giving you some data. Um, uh, your video platform is giving you metadata. Your site and app analytics is giving you other data. How do you harmonize all that together to create a really uh, seamless experience and really understand that audience uh, lifecycle in general and then make better decisions on it. How do you actually run the right campaigns? And so that's what we set out to do with uh, Wicket Labs and um, building out essentially, in a sense, a, a very custom, it's a customer data platform very much focused on uh, media and entertainment that really became this audience insights platform over time. And so, uh, yeah, it was a, uh, you know, the classic startup uh, journey, higher highs, lower lows, all the rest of that kind of stuff. Um, and uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a really, really in interesting way to really dive deep into our customers' businesses and understand what was working and, and what needed improvement and helping them to uh, make those decisions. Mm -hmm. And that segues us nicely into the turning point which was Brightcove's acquisition of Wicket Labs for $13.2 million in Q1 2022. And I should preface this by saying that, you know, Faultline has been directly and indirectly responsible for like millions and millions of dollars. I'm not going to attempt to, to count it, changing hands over the past 20 years, um, influencing the, the investor community. And I believe that Faultline was influential in this deal too. This is because we'd interviewed several of Bright Cove's competitors about a year or so before the Wicket Labs deal. And we reported in the months following that, that these rivals were kind of trash talking Bright Cove's analytics capabilities. And lo and behold, a few months later, then came the Wicket Labs acquisition. And that equipped uh, Bright Cove with you know, OTT video analytics capabilities. And that silenced the likes of JW Player and Kaltura. And, you know, I've accepted Marty, that my commission check is probably lost in the post somewhere by now. But, you know, can, can you tell us a little bit about uh, when you were first uh, and, and how you were first approached by Brightcove's uh, checkbook and how that came about? Yeah, you know, I think, 
you know, us, for us, it was a pretty standard story. We were at that kind of classic um, inflection point. We were a couple million dollars of annual run rate revenue. We were looking at um, uh, what's the next thing for us to do. Uh, we were talking to our board and our, um, our the investors that had put in. It was, it was a very natural kind of inflection point for us to go re- raise a Series A. And that Series A would have been that kind of classic at the time, about a $10 million round. You go out, build out sales and marketing, you start to scale it up, you try and get from a couple million in AR to 10 million in AR, and, and you go from there, right? I think um, at the same time, we had some inbound acquisition interest. And so um, uh, I think maybe I was you know, in hindsight, I might have been a little too honest with my board. You know, they're like, how are you going to spend that uh, $10 million? You're like, well, look, half of it we're going to throw in a dumpster and light it on fire because you get a lot of things wrong in your go-to-market as you scale it up before you get it right. And so you try a lot of things and you hire good people and you hire bad people. All that stuff happens during that phase of that scale up. And there's a lot of startups that can kind of get through it. But never get through it with momentum. And so there's real risk in that kind of that intervening uh, factor. Um, and so when I explained that to the board that we had a good plan, but again, I, I wasn't, you know, I couldn't be absolutely confident in it. And they were like, I think you're a little more honest than our other CEOs uh, uh, as it goes. And so uh, at the same time, we had some inbound acquisition interest. And so we went through a process and we looked at uh, what were some of the alternatives. And at the end of the day, uh, Brightcove ended up being a great fit for uh, our team and our technology. And, and uh, you know, from that, we've become a foundation for a lot of the innovation that uh, Brightcove has been pushing forward for the last 18 months, which has been really fun. So, mm-hmm. And obviously, Brightcove is a, is a company that we've been covering for a long time. Um, I think 2004, 2005 was the first mention of Brightcove in, in fault line. Um, and it's a company that's evolved in so many moving parts, but we talk the way you talk um, with that sort of startup mentality, I think that's very important to have in in a, a large company like um, Brightcove. But um, cycling back to the the acquisition, I think that came at a very pertinent time because I recall your CEO, Mark, on the investors call for one of the quarterly earnings um, that same year, 2022. And he was addressing a trend of, kind of losing business to in-house tools. It's something we talk a lot about. And he was cal- calming any kind of mounting panic by saying that, those times were t- changing and you know Brightcove was plugging those holes and he suggested that the Wicket Labs was kind of core to that and, and playing a role in that so I wonder how is that playing out today you know that the perpetual build versus buy debate is something that will, will go on forever and you, you probably can never fully prevent that but the, you know those words and what I've heard kind of suggest that your team is, is, is helping um, in, in some way with that yeah, yeah, no, it's true. You know, when you look at um, our audience insights, it's kind of become a core in terms of the value we bring to our customers, helping to monetize their content better than anyone else, helping to create, you know, um, uh, reach and engage the globe, um, uh, really under, um, uh, really creating these beautiful video experiences there is a proof of value at each one of those levels that's driven by insights um, as they are today. Um, For our subscription customers, we have our subscriber insights really, again, dig into all that data to really understand what is the lifetime value of each cohort. Just recently, we introduced some new ad insights, actually, um, uh, really looking at this balance between what does your ad load look like versus what does your... um, uh, 
just as versus how your audience engagement, if you, you know, there's always a, a joke that ad loads start to creep up towards the end of the quarter because somebody's got to make a number, right? And so how, you know, meanwhile, the product guys are like, oh, my, my engagement's going through the floor. What are we doing here? You know, and how do you find that right balance really to maximize revenue per minute watch? And so we're helping our customers to like follow that uh, trail down. When we talk about engagement, it turns out that uh, our machine learning um, really indicated that frequency of use is the most causal relationship with whether an audience member is going to be a long-term uh, subscriber of a system uh, or a regular viewer of that video service. And so, again, it's better, you know, if they're watching an hour video, you want to watch uh, three 20 minute segments actually is a better indicator of a long-term audience member. And so really understanding that becomes really, really interesting as well. Um, even on our uh, kind of these beautiful video experiences that we want to create for our customers, we just introduced uh, quality of experience. We think we're the only video platform in the market actually that has that built right in. It's been fascinating to have these conversations with customers and you show up and you're like, you know, you've got a player and it's kicking off 9% of play requests are kicking off an error. Like we got to dig in, we got to fix that. Um, we're coming to our, our partners, our customers as a true partner to say, look, it doesn't matter. It could be us. It could be you. It could be a third party plugin. It doesn't really matter. Let's solve these problems together. Make sure the audience is a great experience. And, and again, all of those elements kind of come into play. And so uh, for Brightcove, our audience insights have become that real proof of value uh, against all the missions that, you know, that we're setting out to solve for our customers. So, mm -hmm. um, You mentioned the new QE analytics dashboard, which you mm -hmm. released at NAB in April this year. And you might recall um, that when you showed me the demo um, for the first time in, in Las Vegas, my initial reaction was kind of something along the lines of, uh, well, it, it looks great and everything. You're hitting all the right points. You've got a score being calculated in the dash, you know, based on metrics uh, from video start time, rebuffering per minute, upscale time, error rate. But the point was that I've, I've seen a lot of analytics dashboards, as I'm sure you have. And I said that it kind of just feels a little too simple you know, to be giving the established QE analytics players sleepless nights. And to my surprise, you completely agreed. You kind of said, well, that's exactly it. We're using simplicity to our advantage and we're coming into the QOE space uh, 10 years later than, than some people with, you know, curated views instead of 70 pages of, of detail. Um, so now, what, uh, five or so months later from, from NAB, I kind of wonder if, you know, the product has, has had a bit of time to bed in. What has the customer reception been like um, in terms of the, the simplicity that we spoke about and what updates have you made since our last chat? Yeah, so, um, you know, a few things that I would say about that that have been fantastic. So, um you're exactly right. We're right now in that great iteration cycle with our customers. So as they've started to use it, they're giving us feedback. Um, hey, we want to dig a little bit deeper on this. We want more exposed here. Like that is the that is the fantastic kind of tension line. And we um, uh, allowed ourselves as a good engineering organization that capacity to like, we're not just moving on to the next thing. We are actually making sure we have engineering resources. And so we have uh, a lot of good progress is happening there. I, I, um, and so you'll see more adv advancements in this platform over the fall actually coming in now that we're a full cycle into that. And so the second thing that we're seeing here, which is a real advantage that we've had is you partner the QOE with this world-class support organization that Brightcove has built up. You know, again, I have team members around the world. And so you show up with a customer uh, 
uh, it's funny, we have an internal initiative of like, and we're just finding the leaks. Where where are plays not actually occurring? Maybe it's an encoding ladder that needs to be optimized. Maybe it's a player that has an error rate. You know, um, maybe we're packing in really high quality streams, but the audience is actually on old Android devices. And so it's not, it's stalling. You know, these are things. And so we're literally going customer by customer with our support teams, digging in, finding these things and sitting down and having conversations. And, um, and that's where the real proof of it has actually come through is, you know, I, I'd love to say that the product was brilliant and it just worked for every customer out of the gate and things like that. But actually, when you, you paired that up with our uh, with our support organization and actually had conversations, um, that's where the real impact actually came from, and the and the real feedback came back to us. You know, it was, it's it's been a great summer of that kind of progress. So um, really cool. Mm-hmm. One feature you teased um, back at NAB was the the dashboard. Book- become kind of more predictive in, in nature, you know, and kind of allow customers to know the errors are coming before they arrive. That kind of brings us full circle to uh, the reading tea leaves. Um, so how, how far along is, is that feature? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly kind of the direction that we're looking at is how do we understand the errors at a deeper level so that we can systematically start to resolve them? And, and again, we're not looking at... Um, we don't want to chase quality of service. Again, there's good, we have good partners, Conviva, nice people at work, others, Mux, you know, like we have plenty of customers that use their QoS stuff. What we're really looking at is stepping back, looking at the data, uh, looking at the systemic issues that are underlying and, and presenting in the data, and then having a conversation about how we resolve that going forward. So less about the um, kind of alerting and emergency issues. And uh, I mean, we have that in our support organization, but this is more about like, hey, let's sit down and make sure we have a great audience experience every single time and, and, and being more, less, less panicky and high friction and be more strategic about how we approach those problems with our customers to solve them. So um, that's exactly what uh, this product is actually enabled for our customers. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you mentioned some of those um, other vendor names, actually, because I, I don't think it's any kind of secret that Brightcove is using, you know, your new QoE analytics as a kind of discussion point with customers to upsell additional products and services in the broader portfolio, which, as we know, is um, is, is very broad. Um, I, you know, those that can actually proactively fix the issues, you know, that are flagged by the video cloud suite. We're kind of looking at the broader picture, you know, and the sort of contrarian view. One could say that Brightcove is, you know, accelerating the commoditization of a space that was already grappling with uh, commoditization quite heavily. And therefore, you know, there can be question marks raised about the actual value, inherent value of those QE analytics tools. You know, Brightcove must have invested maybe $20 million into this, just um, just a ballpark figure, you know, and, and do you think it has that kind of ROI potential? Well, I wouldn't put our investment at that level relative to this particular product. We're already ingesting and, and processing that data. So, you know, a lot of that is a lot of the big upfront expense is like, how do you gather all that data that's out there? And so, um, and because we have so many clients uh, or players or apps that are actually already doing that, um, even just analytics plugins in our customers' apps that they might have developed or worked with a third party, um, the lift was a lot less for us. So uh, I think for us, the way we look at it in terms of a return back to Brightcove is a couple uh, ways. Number one is um, for our existing customer base, again, it's a new conversation and it's really approaching them as a partner's 
obviously that's going to help um, in uh, uh, retaining more of those customers over time. Everybody loses a customer now and then, but you know we are always looking at how do we improve our uh, customer retention as it goes. And so you have to continue to up the game. You can't get static and you can't rest and say, hey, I won you last year. You're going to stick with me next year. That's not this game. You're always in a SaaS business. You're always earning next year the day after they renew. You know, you just start that clock again. And, and so you got to keep adding value along the way. I'd say the second thing we've done is it's really added new value. It's a nice differentiated feature for our new customers that are coming on board. And I agree with you that, um, uh, you know, there's always a challenge of what is uh, commoditizing and what's coming in. I mean, this is a really complex space. And I think um, uh, some people underestimate how complex it can be. Uh, There's plenty of places to add value across the whole technology chain. So I'm not worried about anybody getting commoditized anytime soon. So, um, uh, yeah, it's um, lots of hard problems to continue to solve. Yeah, of course. That um, that ballpark twenty million dollars, of course, was factoring in the uh, the acquisition price as well. Mm-hmm. But you know, we could debate that all day all day long. But this brings us to the PS the resistance, which is of course the impending IBC twenty twenty three. Unfortunately, I myself won't be gracing the show floor or the beach bar. In fact, this year, which is why this podcast episode is a great opportunity for you, Marty, to brief us quickly on what Bright Cove has uh, in store for the show. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think what we're going to be doing, uh, a couple things, spending a lot of time talking about uh, our new ad monetization service. This is something that we have partnered with um, uh, quite extensively with Magnite, and then we added Pubmatic to it, continue to expand that. But again, it's this combination of how do we help our customers monetize the ad avails that they have in front of them, and then combine that with insights to actually prove that it's working. you got to prove it. Um, And so... Uh, doing a lot of conversations around that. There's a big area of focus for us around fast distribution. Uh, frankly, there's a big debate. Are we at peak fast? Are we not at peak fast? You know, we got to figure these things out. Um, uh, is it commoditizing itself where it should just be a feature of uh, Brightcove system? And so we've partnered with Frequency in that area to really help with distribution. And so we've got a lot of really good conversations that, you know, we already have all that video content lined up um, and uh, ready to go for our customers. And then just pushing that out to each of their uh, fast distributors is a, is a really interesting uh, kind of extension of our platform. So some really good things happening there um, uh, that we'll be talking through a lot. So, you know, lots of good, you know, advancements over the last year in the Brightcove platform in general. Um, uh, got a couple of new, uh, things we'll be cooking, um, kicking off and, and announcing, but, um, not a, you know, it's a, for us, you know, a lot of times what we found was historically it was like big bang events, uh, do it once or twice a year, that kind of stuff. We kind of changed that focus this year. We're just every two to three weeks, we're shipping something new, shipping something new, shipping something new. And I think that's a better pace for our customers and it's a better pace for um, showing the value of being on the Brightco platform in general. Mm-hmm. I think a buzzword buzzer would be a great addition to the podcast. You left it right until the end to uh, mention fast. <laughs> yeah, right, had, right, had, exactly. Had to right? get it in there somewhere. <laughs> had to get it in, had to get it in, you know, like, you know, so... Uh, you know, I again, it's a, it's a really interesting space. Like it's growing. Uh, we know it's growing, and yet, what we also know is that beyond 200 channels, it's really hard for these fast platforms to generate traffic to the 200th 
uh, channel. There's a, a reach and discovery issue that's out there. We're also seeing ad monetization, sometimes 50% fill rates on these ad avails. Like th there's some questions that we have to answer as an industry to, to push through on these platforms to get them into uh, a really sustainable place over time. And, you know, here in the U.S., there's like 33. Should there be 33 different class platforms? Or is are we going to see a consolidation down to five or six? You know, these are big questions that we're answering right now and trying to figure out on uh, behalf of our customers. So no good answers, no good 10-year, uh, uh, you know, predictions yet, but uh, it's a good place to hang out. So figure it out. Awesome. All right. That's a good place to end. Um, that's a wrap for this week's uh, episode. Marty, thank you so much for joining. That was great. Um, best of luck for IBC. And Faultline has a meeting booked in with Brightcove at the show. So we will be reporting on that post IBC uh, on the pages of Faultline. And uh, we'll be back next week with another pre IBC executive episode of the Faultline podcast for you know you guys to listen to on your flights or your trains uh into amsterdam so cheers for listening everyone and yeah thanks again marty thank you cheers take care